You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review on this fine Thursday, March the 7th. Welcome back to the Twilight Zone, or in this case, your one safe space, your one sanctuary from the Twilight Zone, because it seems like we're all in denial. Denial, that is the catchphrase for today. If you look up on the Drudge Report, which I haven't been checking for a number of years, but now he's been posting my article, so I figured I'll give him some clicks if he's giving me clicks. So I go, go up there and you'll see the title Swamped. And I know some people will say, well, this is uh, mainstream media talking. I uh, don't believe a word they say, but believe me, you guys know this is a very accurate reflection of what is going on. I'm not, I'm not going to read the article, but I'm going to have it in show notes. An article today explaining how Trump is struggling to defend his record amid setbacks and basically how the entire modus operandi of the White House is to be in denial and make conservatives in denial that we're always making progress. We have all sorts of accomplishments and don't worry, just elect more Republicans and don't do anything else. Ignore all the things we can be doing and we must be doing to fight. Now, we could talk about a million examples of this, but the linchpin to our republic, which is why I've spent so much time focusing on this, is sovereignty. And that's why I wrote the book Stolen Sovereignty. That we no longer are a self-governing people when we could have millions of people flood this country, steal our birthright, steal our census, steal our citizenship, steal our franchise, steal our social programs, steal our language, steal our schools and hospitals, give over communicable diseases, all sorts of things that as a any nation state, since the colonial times, we've worked so hard to stop. We are now told there's nothing we can do about it. This is what it is, and there's not a darn thing you can do about it. And we are told so by unelected district court judges or circuit court judges And it's not just immigration. Every single thing going on in this country gets back to the courts. Every single thing gets back to the courts. Democrats can't do much on their own. Our our movement is focused on AOC, on all these liberals that were just elected, these socialists that were elected to Congress. I'm here to tell you they can't do anything alone. It's a distraction. Because we have hundreds of AOCs on the bench that According to not just liberals, but conservatives, everyone unanimously has accorded them the authority of what is more than 535 AOCs, plus having a potential AOC as president combined, combined. And we don't push back one iota against that notion. You talk about this immigration problem, and it all gets back to one, one, one issue. Everyone's like, we need uh, uh, appropriations. Uh, we need Congress to change the law. I got news for you. At some point, if the law says night and a court says day, you can't change anything enough to deal with those courts. At some point, it's a court problem. At some point, it's our problem 
by acquiescing to this premise that the Supreme Court, much less, mainly nowadays, the problem from these lower courts, are somehow the law of the land over in any and every circumstance, and there's nothing we can do about it. People ask me, Daniel, what do you think Trump should do? I've said a number of times what he should do, that with the news of the day going on this week with the border, he has he's armed with every data point and anecdote dealing with every explosive issue to shut down the border. Let me just read for you. Um, from the inspector general in 2014 when we had the UACs, keep in mind now we have many more of them and most of them are this ilk. Many UAC and family units require treatment for communicable diseases, including tuberculosis, chickenpox, and scabies. UAC and family unit illnesses and unfamiliarity with bathroom facilities resulted in unsanitary conditions and exposure to human waste in some holding facilities. DHS employees reported exposure to communicable diseases and becoming sick on duty. Um, USPB personnel at the Clint station and Santa Teresa station reported that they were potentially exposed to tuberculosis. This is happening on a much bigger scale now. These people that are coming are largely indigenous. They're the poorest of the poor, uneducated of the uneducated. Um, when you when you think about people coming to America in the 1890s uh, from Europe, the the gap, the disparity between those countries and America of America of 1890 was was relatively small. The gap between us and Somalia, the gap between us and and rural indigenous populations in Central America is enormous. Just remember, within 10 days, every one of these people is being permanently embedded in our society. Could you even imagine, even imagine the cost of such a problem? And yet we are told there's nothing we can do. The president has not even talked about this. Tell me, email me your thoughts. What, what, what do you think? Why hasn't the president even mentioned a word about this? It's all defending himself against Cohen and Mueller, but guess what? If he would be talking about this and it, had he not signed that bill and we would have had a live ball play here, guess what we wouldn't be talking about? Mueller and Cohen. Guess what Democrats wouldn't be focused on? Mueller and Cohen. But instead, nobody wants to talk about this. And before we bring in our guest, we're going to have a very special guest today who's going to walk us through this systemic legal problem in the in the conservative cult legal movement particularly, but in general – so it's hard enough to find people focused at all on the border. Everyone's focused on the soap opera. Okay, then you get people focused on the border. Then they'll focus on the wall. When really, at, at best, it's it's 200 miles we're fighting over. And I could tell you, just to illustrate how it doesn't make a difference, to illustrate the degree it doesn't make a difference, and I'm going to try to put out an article on this, I was going back and forth with CBP's press office, but they more or less, they didn't want to have this in writing because they can't be seen as saying this. 700 people were, I I was going to say caught. They weren't caught. They surrendered at El Paso, around El Paso last night. Just 700 people, just like that. But what's funny, you read the press release and it says it's at the wall. Remember, there's a very robust wall that Trump is bragging about, talking about the El Paso wall. They were there. Now, in the past, we've had cases, and we've talked about this, where they come over the wall. The cartels give them ladders, or they come right around it. Um, and we're explaining, you know, again, that if you have lawfare, the wall doesn't work because, you know, you need a border before a border wall could work. It's worse than that. What it appears happened, they were behind the fence. 
It wasn't near a port of entry or near a break, and they didn't come over. CBP agents went and picked them up and brought them in because they crossed the Rio Grande. And remember, the border wall, no matter what, is never on our soil. It ha- By definition, it's always going to be moved north, pretty substantially at the Rio Grande, less so in places like San Diego, but in almost every part of the border, it's there's a meaningful space of American soil that's before that they traverse before the border wall. We are told, if we are going to be told now that they believe that a single district judge or a handful of them that the ACLU and those groups could go to, by the way, some of the same groups that are forming the caravans are the ones creating the lawsuits, could tell us that if you step on that soil, we have to come from behind the wall and pick you up. Think about that. No one's talking about it. So what the hell does the wall have to do with anything? We have a much bigger problem. Okay, so then then there's the final level. Even the people I could get to that recognize, yes, Daniel, we need to change the laws. The laws are crazy. And I tell them, like, I I agree, like, I'd rather Congress do something, but you realize that it's never going to happen. So, but you realize that's not the law. You realize, and even if it would be the law, there's there's a contravening law, as well as Article 2 powers, the president could shut it off. So you understand that that that's what needs to be done. Like, yeah, 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 but I'm in the courts, and 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 they speak about the law as if the courts are right. Meaning, there's one thing if you're too scared to fight back against the courts, but at least you know you have your attorney general give a press conference. You you list all the stuff that I do: the case law, the statute, the constitution. This is absurd. This is insane. You you delegitimize it at least. Instead, they literally. Call it the law. So, you know, the court will say a donkey and a horse is a marriage. And we'll talk about it. Yeah, uh, we've got to fix the law. The law says donkey. At least just say it. District judge did it and he's crazy. But no. Nobody will even go there. They'll turn over every rock, explore every option. But they will never, ever look at the one thing. Maybe that's one variable we can and need to change. Because we need to change it on every issue anyway. Because here's the deal, folks. The best case scenario, Republicans win back the House. The best case scenario, Trump wins re-election. All that does is puts, a, puts us back to where we were two years ago with the same assholes as majority leader of the Senate and the House. You're not going to have a filibuster-proof majority anywhere near it. At best, you hold the Senate. And even then, half of them are – more than half are, are leftists, particularly in issues like immigration. All you are left with is executive action. That is all you are left with. And yet, and yet, we are now told that everything that Trump has lawful power to do, he can't do, and that these district judges could issue universal injunction, even if we know the Supreme Court wouldn't agree, and that permanently alters policy to the point where it could bring in a million immigrants before a Supreme Court could step in. And not only that, we're told that even just the stuff he does to just Get rid of Obama's executive actions. Can't do. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And you look at the net result. We are worse off than we ever were on every policy. The debt is worse than ever. Healthcare is worse than ever. And the border is worse than ever in the severity of all of that. That that is a measure for you to look at in terms of the temperature, the barometer of progress. This is what Michelle Malkin was talking about, that we are not winning. Let's just first recognize that before we blame, let's just recognize that.
And if we are going to agree to the notion of judicial supremacy to this degree, and even to lower courts, and even with universal injunctions, and even over issues that directly contradict open case law, either uninterrupted or recent case law or both, we are done, done, done. Now, before I have diarrhea of the mouth and lose my voice here, it's time to bring in our guest. Why am I bringing him today? Josh Hammer, as you guys know, has become a dear friend of mine, colleague, um, one of the people that makes me feel that I'm not mentally ill and insane in this movement, that actually other people um, you know, are not in the twilight zone. He's now editor-at-large of the Daily Wire. He's also counsel at First Liberty Institute, great Texas-based um, organization, one of the few that fights back in the courts on you know, the war on, on religion and, and property rights and conscience. But the thing about Josh is that beforehand, he put in a lot of time in legal institutes. He graduated from a prominent university, Duke University, um, University of Chicago Law School, one of, the, one, of the, one of the famous law schools in America. He went on to, to um, serve on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Mike Lee for a period of time. He was a delegate for Ted Cruz at the convention and – he served as most recently a clerk on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to Judge Jim Ho, one of the few really good picks. You know, not all of the Trump picks are great. That is one of them. So he has really a full picture of what's going on, lots of different uh, perspectives, lots of different contexts with people. He seems to know everyone. And I wanted to give you an insider's view of the psyche of this movement and why we are where we are today. Hey, Josh, uh, it seems like you've done everything in life except get married. When are we going to get you married? <laughs> Daniel, it's great to be on with you. Uh, suffice to say, I'm working on that right now. So hopefully oh, wow. I'll be wrapped up near enough. All righty. Well, that, that, that's something to look forward to. And uh, the, the only bad thing news about that is you won't have enough time uh, to, to fight for us. Um, could we just start off? I don't know where to start off with, and we can go on forever. So I figured we'll just put in our, our private conversations on record, record them, send them out to the world. Um, <laughs> how is it that here, – here's what I don't understand. Everyone talks about executive power grabs. It's very cool to talk about that. Um, the left, when it's convenient, like now with Trump, the right is always executive, executive power. Okay, fine. But yet, when you have judicial power grabs and the judiciary could violate rules of standing, precedent – statute, set a law, constitution, get involved in stuff that's just purely political, even in a way that they're forcing the president to continue other executive abuses. So it's a mixture of executive and judicial abuse. Crickets. Crickets. When that is the entire impetus for everything we're talking about on on the border now, and I don't hear a single member of Congress identify that. Why are we all talking around the 800-pound gorilla in the room? Yeah, so viewed from like a broader perspective, Daniel, and we talked a little bit about this, but I'm not sure that this has kind of been like the crux of any of our phone calls and, and off the record, obviously private in the past. There's obviously a long-running problem with Congress as, as an institution, and people have written about this in any sorts of ways. Um, but obviously the problem and you know this goes for a lot of our friends in the house freedom caucus a lot of people who are finding the good fight kind of our guys on the inside even the incentive structure of being a, a legislator 
has just changed. We are so far removed from the Madisonian framework, Federal 51, where Madison talks about how ambition must be made to counteract ambition. Nowadays, especially, obviously, you know, post Woodrow Wilson and this kind of hellish administrative law article to centric landscape, the incentive structure has just dramatically changed for legislators to kind of, you know, statutorily delegate broad swaths of their legislative authority to mandarins and bureaucrats hidden in the administrative state that, that aligns with their political incentives, right? They don't have to stand for re-election talking about these tough issues if you can just tell an administrator to basically fill in the Clean Air Act for you, right? I mean, that's easy enough. But it's also easy for them to do so because really more days, uh, more nowadays for re-election purposes, just these guys want to try and get on Fox News. They want to get on the media. They're just the, the whole incentive structure of the original framework where the three branches were meant to be in a state of tension with one another has just changed. And too many people in Congress are just way too willing to delegate their power to, to, to Article 2. And this is kind of the problem that we're seeing with a lot of what you're talking about with how the courts are kind of mandating the continuance of the oftentimes uh, egregious Obama administrative fiat agenda. Um, from an administrative law perspective, there, the kind of the, the holy grail statute is the Administrative Procedure Act, which was passed, I think, in 1946, just after World War II. And basically there, what courts are supposed to look at in theory is whether or not a regulation is arbitrary and capricious before um, kind of rescinding it. Um, but it sure seems that in the Trump administration, courts are constantly opining that, that the Trump administration's rationale for repealing a given administration is arbitrary and capricious with respect to the Obama president. But that's kind of wild in and of itself, right? Because the status quo ante prior to Obama was presumably not arbitrary and capricious itself. So I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss for you as to why more of our kind of conservative friends on the inside are not pushing back against this. But Lord knows we need to start somewhere. So hopefully, you know, folks like us, like mine in the media, kind of shouting from the peanut gallery can kind of help these guys get some traction, find their footing. Yeah, I mean, because you see, when it comes to Trump's um, reprogramming of DOD funding, so, you know, there's a robust debate. Everyone's like, hey, I don't know if you could do this. And the number of Republicans are joining and even conservatives, um, some they decide, you know, th they're on the fence and, and they don't feel comfortable. And I, and I understand why. I, I, I agree with some of the sentiment. Um, I, I totally agree with it. Uh, some ultimately decide to vote. They're going to vote against the president, some for him. But they all seem to be able to voice, yeah, I, I don't like this executive power thing. But I, I, the source of this very issue we're talking about, why we are in this position with a border crisis, is solely a judicial problem. And, and ironically, often the judiciary codifying previous executive power grabs, and nobody is willing to point the finger there. Like, like I'm not even saying jurisdiction stripping legislation. I'm not even there yet. I mean, even articulating you don't have that power. So let's back this up. How have we come to a point? Let, let me let me let me articulate it this way and, and get your response. <laughs> How intellectually have we come to a point? Because this is essentially what it is, where a single district judge, much less the Supreme Court, is more powerful 
than every member of Congress and the president put together. Meaning, let me ex- explain that in actuality, how this could occur under the prevailing thought that is endorsed by both sides and it is absolutely wrong and and not the system of government we adopted. And that is as follows. Let's say 435 members of Congress, that a, a bill passes the House 435 to zero um, and um, 100 to zero in the Senate. Let's just give an example as follows. And I, I don't want to get down this rabbit hole of the issue itself, but just to give an example that America is a sovereign place, and indeed, not, uh, you you can't break into our country and grab citizenship. So obviously, no baby um, born to an illegal is an American citizen. Let's say tomorrow, let's just you know, for argument's sake, four hundred thirty-five members of Congress would vote for that, a hundred senators, and the president would sign it. Now, let's say it would stand for two hundred years thereafter. Either no one would challenge it, or they it would get challenged in various capacities, and the courts would say an uninterrupted stream of case law, emphatically, yeah, this is this is obvious. They have the power; it's no problem. We are told that at any point from now until God reveals Himself on the Mount of Olives, that someone that a single forum shop district judge could come and say, nope, right now, instantaneously. Every illegal breaks in the country is an American citizen. Am I not wrong in that analogy? And how did that happen? No, you're not wrong at all. Um, gosh, where to start? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I mean, we're looking at the decades-long corruption of legal culture in America. It's, it, it's nothing short of that. It really starts fundamentally, and you and I have both written about this for our various outlets at great length at times. It really starts with the 1958 case of Cooper v. Aaron. That's kind of where it all truly goes down. You mean it didn't start Um, with Marbury? Well, this is, you know, I mean, this is kind of like a nerdy, quirky debate among some conservatives as to whether Marbury is actually right. I I agree with Michael Stokes Paulson, who's probably my favorite constitutional law scholar, actually. He has a pretty persuasive law review piece um, that kind of pushing back against what he calls the myth of Marbury. Um, and And this is... This is kind of the whole. This is kind of the whole playing field. This is the whole game. Is judicial review versus judicial supremacy, yeah. right? So, and you've written about this. I've written about this. But, but for the audience, here's kind of the main difference. Judicial review, all that Marbury v. Madison established, and it was not kind of creating a new fabrication. This was well grounded at the time of the founding, when the framers wrote that the judicial power, in the words of Article Three, was kind of understood in the English common law tradition what they meant by this. It's, uh, it's also expl- expressly referenced for whatever that may be worth in Federal 78 by Hamilton, is it was, it was allowing the judiciary to enjoin enforcement of a statute if that statute ran counter to an express constitutional provision only as it applies to the litigants who was a party to that lawsuit. That is judicial review. It's a very narrow actual power. Judicial supremacy, which was hinted at in a footnote in the 1859 case. Uh, I can't remember the name of the case. I think Abelman was one of the parties, but uh, I wrote about this in a paper when I was back in law school. But it, after that footnote, it took 99 years for the Supreme Court to get to Cooper v. Aaron in 1958, which was the, the case where the court, for the first time in the history of the Republic, basically said that the judiciary's word is final, and that goes. And it's kind of really that was a seminal moment. We are still reaping the repercussions of that 
for decades on end. Um, because from there, what, from, from, from judicial supremacy, you don't get an idiosyncratic ad hoc legal judgment against the party, which is all you got from Marbury. From Cooper v. Aaron and judicial supremacy, what you get is the power of the judiciary to propagate, promulgate, and essentially, many people erroneously think, self-enforce yep. binding political judgments for the entirety of the country. And that that is a wild difference to get from Marbury to Cooper. And for Cooper, you know, decades later, uh, you know, the Warren Court, obviously, in the 60s had their many, many nightmares of kind of fabricating rights. You had the corruption of substantive due process as a doctrine, you know, uh, right to privacy in Griswold, of course, Roe and Casey, and then all the homosexual rights cases. Um, but it, then kind of the final culmination of this trend that you're alluding to was this nationwide injunction trend. And the nationwide injunction debate is kind of a cabin debate for a lot of like nerdy lawyer types. It really shouldn't be. It is one of the most important debates possibly in America right now. And I, I know you were too, Daniel. I was thrilled to see Justice Thomas write about this at great length and his fantastic concurrence in Trump v. Hawaii last term in the so-called travel ban case. Um, Sam Bray, who's a friend of mine, had a brilliant law review article in the Harvard Law Review in December 2017, I think it was, that he kind of made the definitive case against why nationwide injunctions are utterly anathema to Article Three and gen- and just more generally the Anglo-Saxon uh, legal tradition. Sure. So the nationwide injunction, there were, uh, Sam traces it at the, in, at great length in his law review article. There were like a few here and there in the 1670s, but it was during the Obama administration that it really kind of picked up. And obviously it has come, you know, uh, or, or the magnitude even further now in the Trump administration than from what it was in the Obama administration. But the basic argument is that nationwide injunctions, the ability of a rogue district court judge sitting in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Hawaii, San Francisco, wherever, it doesn't really matter. Um, it, and frankly, this applies for judges of all stripes, Daniel. I mean, this is the thing. You have to be, you have to be intellectually consistent about this. Judge Reed O'Connor, who's a personal friend of mine, I love Reed. He's, I live in Dallas. Reed is in Fort Worth. and He's in the uh, northern district of Texas. He's a very conservative judge. Um, he has issued nationwide injunctions, and I, I respectfully disagree. I think it's here, there, and everywhere yeah. wrong, both as a policy matter and as a constitutional matter. That remedy, the remedy of a district court judge being able to just facially bring a stop to a political policy from his lone judicial chamber across the country is not rooted in yep. the judicial power of which the vesting clause of Article Three speaks. Because that and would be I a veto. So that that would be an entire exactly. new layer of it, it, it exactly. passes Congress, signed by the president, and then it goes to a veto, right? Which exactly. which you know we we've talked before on the show philosophically, it makes no sense when you understand the way they arrived at the final version of the. You know Sherman compromised to get get the Constitution off the ground. There was no way they would have ever com- contemplated two separate rounds of veto, right? There's no like you said, and and this is even on the Supreme Court level. It's you issue a ruling, a, you grant relief from a law to a plaintiff, but you don't veto a statute, right? There's no veto. There's no. Mm-hmm. I mean, meaning, isn't it true that the district judge just brings out another egregious level that just the geographical scope that, you know, it, it can't apply outside of that that district. But even more so, it's even for the Supreme Court and even 
not assuming ge- geographical issues, like you said, it should only apply for those litigants. Well, that's right. I mean, it's it's egregious enough what the what the Supreme Court did in Cooper v. Aaron to aggrandize this judicial supremacist power for Article Three in and of itself. It's even more egregious for that doctrine to percolate to courts that are not constitutionally established, but are only established by Congress. Because you know, your audience is obviously a very well educated audience, but just you know, for those who not, I'm, I'll just read right here, Article Three, Section One. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. So while it's true that there have been lower courts since the initial Judiciary Act of 1789, it still took an act of Congress to create those lower courts. There are no courts in the United States outside the Supreme Court of the United States that is constitutionally mandated. And what that should tell you is that just from like a 35,000-foot altitude level, that if Congress retains plenary authority to create a lower court, they necessarily have plenary authority to statutorily eradicate mm-hmm. a lower court at will if they want to. And if they can eradicate a lower court, then they certainly can statutorily uh, proscribe a certain type of remedy, like like a nationwide injunction. So there's really nothing here other than pure institutional laziness from Congress and not statutorily addressing this. Um, again, the Supreme Court may one day constitutionally address it. That's kind of that was kind of the crux of the Thomas concurrence in Trump v. Hawaii that we just referenced. But there's really nothing here other than institutional laziness, general sycophancy towards this post Cooper v. Aaron legal culture. Um, it's really sad. And we can talk more about kind of the federal society and the progression of the so-called legal uncertainty yeah. movement if you want. But the, the whole movement has just been corrupted by just these thumb-sucking judicial supremacists <laughs> is really what it is. Yeah, And uh, you kind of yeah, – sorry, go on, Dan. No, no. I was just going to say, and, and um, you, you would think there would be a floor to it. Like what, what I'm so just at, at a breaking point over on this issue is that – we are now at a worse point than I thought we'd be even when I wrote my book, which is why I wrote my book. And I thought if we ever got anywhere near here, at least it would be some progress. And and I guess what I find disturbing is this. You, you mentioned it before. While I don't agree with the premise of judicial supremacy, even at a Supreme Court level, but at least, at least the nationwide injunction issue, because that's 80% of the political problems we're having now, is that the Supreme Court wouldn't initially initiate a lot of this stuff. Eventually, they often overturn these things. Sometimes they don't take it up, and that's the whole problem with Roberts. We've my audience is well aware of that. Um, but if this allows them, and, and this is the whole point. All these people think we're changing the courts. Oh, Trump has all these judges and everything, but it doesn't matter because all they need to do is go to their judges, and there's certainly it, it would take decades to flush that out. And they get what they need. They get what they want. And if we're told that that is it, and then even if the Supreme Court overturns it, they could come back with a thousand different other angles. And again, instantaneously, it takes effect. It creates a policy, political, and legal momentum in that direction and permanently alters the politics. I always tell people the example on the Supreme Court, everyone knows, would never have initially said, Trump, you have to continue DACA. But now that the lower court did and successfully has done so for over a year, it altered the entire political debate and therefore the policy outcomes at our border because it took away from Trump. And in my view, he agreed to it anyway, so it's somewhat his fault. But 
took away his ability to use that as leverage over Democrats. I'm going to get rid of it. No, well, the court's continuing. So my question to you is, do you think that there is ever anything a court – like we all know that when a president or Congress does things that everyone knows is a usurpation, people call it out. That's a usurpation. Is there anything even a district judge could do, much less Supreme Court, that even the right side, even Republican-oriented people – will actually treat as illegitimate. I don't even mean to the point of actively doing their own thing. I mean, at least rhetorically. I'm not seeing it. Are, are you seeing any progress? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is no. <laughs> um, you, you know, you had a really interesting column, I thought. It was like last July or August, whenever the defense distributed 3D gun printing case uh, was facing kind of like that panoply of state attorneys general who were trying to proscribe it. And there was, I can't remember the, the exact procedural posture, but I think that the court, maybe here in Texas, had issued like a preliminary injunction of some sort. You had a really interesting column. And your column, if I recall it, basically said that if there's any issue that could unite more traditional conservative types like me and you with our libertarian, you know, so-called brethren, emphasis, emphasis on so-called, but, you know, <laughs> our so-called brethren, if we, if, if we can all unite around like one issue, it probably should be the gun issue, right? I mean, that's yeah. kind of like one that, that theoretically should unite all of us. Um, and really, at its, at its core, the 3D gun printing issue is actually just a first, it's a first amendment issue. It's not even a second amendment issue. It's literally just about uh, uploading and downloading information. So you, had, I yeah. think your column was, it, 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 it's kind of like the, the judicial supremacist, pro-strong pro Article Three power, the people uh, like Cato and Super Justice who are talking about so-called judicial engagement, uh, which basically just translates to right-leaning judicial activism. If, it, if anything is ever going to wake that crowd up and make them smell the judicial supremacist coffee and make them a little more skeptical and possibly even going all the way to a coordinate branch of government actually defying a ruling as it pertains to uh, parties who are not parties to the actual suit, it theoretically would have been something like that. Um, it didn't happen, obviously. No, That wasn't like the most high-profile issue, so maybe that's part of the reason why. Um, but, I mean, at, at this point, I mean, you know, if a district court judge kind of tried to issue an injunction to demand that Donald Trump issue a national address from the Oval Office butt naked or like, <laughs> I mean, maybe the president would, maybe the president would defy it at that point. Uh, but like, but, but, but like I want to tweak, I want to tweak your language there. See, that's where I, I think we got to be careful with our language. <clears throat> I don't like the word defy. Why is it that the courts are the starting point and we react? Are you, Daniel, do you, do you support not listening to the courts? Well, in this context, yes, but it, to me, that's not what it is. They're the ones not listening to our laws, constitution, his, history, heritage. You know what I'm saying? That's what I think we need to do. We need to change the order, especially when it's the courts mandating putting a positive on a negative action of the executive branch, mandating they take authority that is not pursuant to law. Um, they're the ones engaging in civil disobedience. And my concern is now you're seeing a downright civil disobedience against immigration law. I mean, that's systemic throughout everything. Every facet of sovereignty, they don't believe in. They're making it a civil right. They believe there's a right to immigrate. It's very clear. Our guys get all in the weeds. Well, this, that, maybe we update the statute. And like They don't see the forest from the trees. Right? That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening. They, they fundamentally delegitimize the concept of sovereignty. So 
I understand that this has been long in the making and, you know, it's been legitimized for very long. And I understand if you're a president that it's hard to push back against that built up misconception. But what I don't understand is, don't you reach a point in the egregious nature of what they're doing that it's so easy to articulate against it, that it's so wrong and it's so destructive? He, 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 Trump is is literally at, at the cliff with the border now. He has no he has no options. It's insane, and we won't even peek into that. He won't even use Tom, Clarence Thomas is out, even cite it, even or or have his attorney general do that. I mean. That's my problem. Is there any momentum in the legal profession to at least get up there and start to say universal injunctions are are illegitimate? Yeah, I mean, there are some people besides Sam Bray who wrote that Harvard Law piece that I referred to earlier in the show. I mean, I think you had on Professor Fitzpatrick, remember his name, at, at yeah. Vanderbilt Law School. He's, he's He's testified in Congress against nationwide injunctions. Uh, my friend Josh Blackman down in Houston is very skeptical of nationwide injunctions. He actually had a really nice piece on, on Cooper v. Aaron itself, the judicial supremacy case last year. So, you know, there are some some diamonds in the rough, so to speak. But in general, the judicial culture on this is just not very good. And, and just a quick point of correction, Daniel, you're totally right, by the way, about being careful with the language and defy. Um, Federal 78 is actually pretty clear about this. That's Hamilton, of course. He says, it may truly be said, and he's talking about here about the courts, obviously, the courts may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm. Mm-hmm. And here's the key part, even for the efficacy of its judgments. Think about that. Even for the efficacy of its judgment, a judgment is defined as the actual adjudication for the parties in a case. So think about that. Hamilton is saying that the executive branch doesn't even need to self-enforce a judgment. That, that's what I want. Parties. Yes, yes. That's Josh. I'm oh, man. Am I glad you brought that up? Meaning, there's two things they get wrong. First off, they get Marbury wrong. They get off they, like you're saying. They, they they get wrong that it's self-executing um, and universally binding on everyone. It's just they, that it's somehow a veto. That it's somehow a veto. Um, but even is is it's it's just it's just judgment. Okay, uh, you um. You, you get judgment. You, you know, you uh, they're asking you to, you know, they're they're doing something ex post facto or a bill of attainder against you. Uh, yeah, you 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 get relief. But even for that, the notion that it's a veto, it's you, we have a constitution, okay? And so what what I want to say is, l- l- let me visualize it like this: if Congress passes a law, House passes it, Senate passes it, and then the president vetoes it. That law is vitiated. It doesn't get off the ground. That it's struck down. The word struck down is appropriate there. It's struck down. It has no force. But if a law passes, whether it's a state thing, a governor and legislative level or federal level, Congress and, and the president, it passes. There's no judicial veto. That's not mechanically what happens. It's that, look. They kind of interact with the individual civil society in terms of the application of the law. So if they're going to sit and say in a case that, look, we don't we don't believe it's the Constitution, you have to follow the Constitution. So more or less, if you want to defer to that, it will eventually become a political rule across the board that that's what we do. But if they clearly get it wrong, meaning 
Yeah, look, look, you and I both know if you read the writings, especially of the prominent Federalists that helped craft Article 3, the majority of them in the 1790s, especially with the French Revolution, when they were worried about popular legislatures, they, they countenanced the notion of judicial review, not the way our opponents believe it is. But even then, that was a political view. I could politically say – I would rather – I think it's a good idea to defer in general to the courts. Believe me, if the courts were getting the Constitution better than the legislature, I would probably be – not legally, but politically. I'd say, yeah, I, I wish we'd follow them. Like, Just like I wish – look, let, let's say we had nine Clarence Thomases on the bench and every uh, lower bench. Everyone was a Clarence Thomas. Believe me, I wish we would defer to him. But that's different from saying it's ironclad, legally, mechanically a veto, and there's not a damn thing you could do about it. No, that's what Abraham Lincoln was saying when he left out of, thus says the Lord. It's like the word of the Lord. No, it's like they gave their thing, but at the end of the day, they have neither force or will to even enforce that. So if they're like, um, Border Patrol, you have to let everyone in. Hey, no, how about you get your fat rear end off the bench and you will let them if, if you want. Oh, whoops, you don't have that power. So we're going to follow the law the way we understand it. Yeah. No, I'm so happy you brought up Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln is like my guy of all guys. Uh, I was born on Lincoln's birthday, something I've been proud of my whole life. Huh. Um, uh, here, actually hanging on my wall right now is a birthday gift that my girlfriend made for me last month. It's actually, she, she, she bought a newspaper from April 1861, an original copy. Uh, it's actually the day that Lincoln declared troops were going in, and uh, it's just a wonderful gift that she made for me. And I'm kind of like looking at it right now. So yeah, so Lincoln's like my guy of all guys, and Lincoln, of course, is a lot of people think about the Lincoln Douglas debates as being centered around the substantive issue of slavery, and it obviously was to an extent, but mm-hmm. even more so than that. And again, Michael Stokes Paulson, that same constitutional law scholar, he's written a, a wonderful piece about the Lincoln Douglas debates that you know the listeners can look up pretty pretty easily from Google. The Lincoln-Douglas debates even more were actually about the scope of binding authority of the Supreme Court. And Stephen Douglas, who was a racist, he was he, 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 he was emphatically supportive of slavery and expanding slavery into, into, into the territories, of course. Stephen Douglas took the judicial supremacist position. He took the position that is – Orthodox in the legal in the legal academy and of course and across the judiciary since Cooper v. Aaron, it was Lincoln, the first Republican Party president, um, who consistently told Stephen Douglas that he was basically an idolater, that he was basically standing there uh, in, in, engaging in golden calf esque idolatry at the Supreme Court, and in, 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 in Lincoln's first inaugural address, famously. He talked about how the people would should never resign themselves to the hands of, quote, that eminent tribunal, referring to the Supreme Court. Lincoln, of course, refused to apply Dred Scott to the territories. He ultimately ended up issuing passports to blacks and territories in, in direct defiance of Dred Scott. So what folks like me and you are ultimately doing is we're just trying to channel Lincoln. That's really all we're doing here. And I wrote a piece for Daily Wire about a month and a half ago. It was one of my earlier op-eds since joining the site full-time, where I basically argued that much as only Nixon could go to China, in many ways, Trump is kind of the only guy. It's kind of almost paradoxical, obviously, because you know you think of Trump as kind of not being this kind of like stately Lincolnian figure, and perhaps he's not, whatever. It's not really my issue right now. 
But in many ways, he's kind of like the only guy who has kind of the cojones, for lack of a better term, and also who just simply doesn't care what people think about him and dislikes kind of the legal media, cultural, judicial establishment so much that if anyone is going to defy a, an Article Three judgment against the executive branch, it's going to be Trump. And I want him to do it. I want him to, like, think very carefully about which battle he chooses and, like, how he ultimately does it. But if, if there's no doubt in my mind that if Trump v. Hawaii had come out the other way, if that was a 5-4 the other way, then he totally should have done it there. Um, no doubt about that. But at this point, we're kind of waiting for the right test case from my perspective. But we just need someone to start, to, to start getting it back on track. And Trump is, is really the guy to do it. I, think I, he, he, I don't he, think he, he recognizes it because I, I don't think anyone's putting this in his ear. He takes it as it's gospel. And I don't blame him because he doesn't know anything about this stuff. Everyone he speaks to in the White House takes it like there's no wiggle room. Like, for, for example, literally as we're, we're recording now, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is – relatively much better than than many of the others um depending on what panel you get they just ruled with a, a bunch of uh, daca illegals that that got a daca status wanted um to get the in-state tuition rate at georgia universities and georgia unlike other states you know doesn't allow that and they wanted to say well we're not illegal we're daca it's, it's real and no they they ruled you're you're deportable you're you know, this is whatever so it's not exactly the same case but it clearly if you would have taken the initial case to the 11th circuit they would have ruled with him so i mean he you know what I mean? Like, isn't that a case where he needs to say, look, you guys went to the place where you wanted. You know, if you get the Supreme Court is one thing, but I'm just not going to deal with um, – because I think you had this even with the travel venue. We've had it with several cases where he actually won in some cases, but they'll just go somewhere else. So, I mean, isn't that a case where he could stand up there? Isn't that a good place to start? Not even defying the concept of judicial supremacy, which would be nice but at least the universal injunction form shopping stuff. Yeah, no, I, 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 to, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I, I think that that would be a great place to start, too. I mean, you theoretically probably should start with the district court it's, 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 instead of even right to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's kind of, that's theoretically the easier way to do it. <laughs> um, the other piece of this puzzle is not just the separation of powers, but also kind of the federalism aspect. And a lot of people get really queasy when you and I write about this and discuss this because it kind of, Summons to mind, you know, Calhoun and nullification yeah. and that whole, that whole crisis in the 1830s and mm-hmm. But the supremacy clause of Article 6 of the Constitution does not refer to ad hoc judicial judgments, right? It refers to the Constitution and the laws of the United States and includes treaties, obviously. So while obviously a state cannot legislate in direct defiance of congressional statutory law that preempts it. I don't see anything in the supremacy clause, and I'm pretty sure you don't either, that is preventing a governor of a state from refusing to enforce an Article Three legal judgment that is erroneous. So that's kind of the other piece of this puzzle is not just a president pushing back against, uh, in this case, a district court. Um, we, we really need a big red state uh, to to make a stand against a rogue leftist judge. And Texas is kind of ideally suited for that in a lot of ways. I mean, it's kind of the nation's iconic. Red State, the Texas Attorney General's Office, and Solicitor General's Office is a really, really, really great crop for the most part of 
pretty conservative lawyers. Um, so they, they would be able to write some really nice memos and kind of some, some supporting documents. That's kind of the other thing that I'm waiting to happen. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm planning on writing about this more in the next few weeks for mm. sure. But it's not just a separation of powers issue with the court. It's also a federalism issue. Uh, sanctuary cities, I mean, my God, I mean, sanctuary cities, perhaps more than anything else, kind of the issue that I think symbolizes the tension more than anything else. I mean, what the courts have done on, 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 on sanctuary city policy is just egregious. So if, you, if you're looking for a single issue for a governor to kind of take a strong stand, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not positive that Governor Abbott is that guy personally, but it's, it's possible. Um, but that would be the issue, perhaps more than anything else, where I would look for a governor to, to really take a stand and potentially just basically flip the middle finger to a court that issues an erroneous judgment. You know, it's it's interesting you mentioned the the state aspect because just to think how far we have come. I always like quoting Hamilton in Federalist Thirty Three, where he said he and he was talking about Congress, very clearly talking about Congress because he's talking about Congress crushing the states. You know, that that was the whole big thing. They were worried about. You know, Congress crushing the states. That's basically what the Federalist Papers were written to try to defend that, no, it's not going to be a problem. And he said that, look, if they engage in acts of usurpation, so think about this for a minute, the playing field. Congress, which is should have been the most powerful federal branch against the states, he said, quote, those acts are, quote, merely acts of usurpation and will deserve to be treated as such. What I find astounding is that we are at a point when the congressionally created component of the weakest federal branch could engage in usurpations and even the stronger federal branches, much less the states, will never treat it as a usurpation. So, for example, another thing about judicial review, let me just give an example of that, is the judicial power, as we said, it doesn't mean like people think, let's see what the courts say. Well, the courts don't get to rule on an abstract concept. You have to have standing. You have to have someone that it's not like a game, oh, let's get this in the courts to rule on the issue. By definition, that's not what they do. So you could do it all you want, but it won't be binding. So let's say they just grab a case because they want to use this erroneous political culture of a judicial veto, and they'll just give someone that doesn't have standing. So, like, you know, you, you often have certain things that if they would be right on the merits, well, clearly it affects their rights. But then it's like, you know, this the whole judicial ruling yesterday from that San Francisco judge on um, the, the Census Bureau is not allowed to ask a question of citizenship. Now, forget about the absurdity how it flips citizenship and reapportionment of voting and governance by the consent of government on its head inside of whatever. But I'm just saying, who the hell says that that's a gestatable case? That I could, I don't like you asking me, like, give me a break. That's not, I mean, what I'm saying is when you have these, agree, or, or, or for example, when you had in the, the caravan, got standing because the leftist group said, the the order makes us work overtime um, to to educate our people on the thing. When it's a clear usurpation of their power, right? Let's say Congress, Pelosi and McConnell would get together and say, "We are going to raise an army and start directing it as commander in chief, not the president. We're going to tell um, the the first infantry brigade, hey guys, go deploy to this country. We would treat it as a usurpation. I mean, isn't that obvious? Yeah, no. I mean, I'm I'm really happy you brought up standing because that's not, that's another 
part of this puzzle is that the, is that the judiciary and, and the legal culture, by extension, has just been completely complicit in this radical expansion of standing doctrine over the past half century or so. Um, so First Liberty, where I'm of counsel, actually just argued last Wednesday in the Bladensburg cross case of the Supreme Court. So there's a peace cross memorial uh, in Bladensburg, Maryland, very close to Washington, D.C., memorializing, uh, I can't remember the exact number, 46 or 47 maybe, uh, veterans who tragically died in, in the First World War. And, it, and it's, it's an establishment clause case, the First Amendment. But, for example, there, the current state of, of, of the Supreme Court case law for standing doctrine for the establishment clause essentially allows standing if you're an aggrieved observer. If you just like happen to be, you know, like like some like, some, like witless atheist group, uh, and like you see this cross, and you're and you're allowed to like to sue. That is insane. Like, like that is that is absolutely absurd. I mean, perhaps it, standing reached like kind of its its climactic absurdity in the 2007 case in Massachusetts, the EPA, where they essentially granted standing to the state of Massachusetts to make a Clean Air Act claim that carbon dioxide and other uh, particles in the air would make the sea rise and by extension would make Massachusetts lose physical landmass. And the Supreme Court granted standing in that. Like, absurd. So that's that's actually a huge part of this puzzle. um, Is you have to have in in the text of Article 3 of the Constitution an actual case or controversy. And to have an actual case or controversy, you need to have an actual injury in fact. And then there has to be redressability that a court can actually redress your case as a matter of a proper Article 3 remedy. But the injury in fact is something that we have just dramatically lost over all these years. And the court has been complicit in in basically saying that anything, no matter how speculative, is an injury. Uh, Scalia, for his years on on the bench, was pretty hawkish on the issue of standing. So some conservatives have kind of you know yelled toward history, or stood toward history, yelling stop on the issue of standing. Yeah. Thomas certainly has as well. But we've kind of lost that too, and that's and, and we've lost it for the same reason that we've lost this general judicial skepticism to kind of this libertarian movement. It's it's, it's this libertarian centric legal movement that I referred to in a piece last week as the quote, monolithic anti-administrative state cabal, these people who are kind of just monolithically obsessed above anything else with retracting the administrative state and overturning curses, uh, overturning cases like Chevron and Hour that are seen as boosting the administrative state. And like caveat, like I agree that Chevron and Hour are wrong, but it's just not the be all end all of why we're engaged in this fight. And I, I view these issues as all relating to one another. OK, if you take a strong view of the Article three power, like a lot of our libertarian brethren do. If you support, quote, judicial engagement, which basically says that the judges should be actively engaged in fact-finding, even at the appellate level, and they should be trying to read kind of unenumerated implied rights, be it in the Ninth Amendment, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, wherever they can kind of squeeze it in, find any kind of textual hook whatsoever. If you believe that judges are capable of this kind of uh, – philosophizing from the bench in the robes and as a former federal law clerk, hey, newsflash, they can't. Uh, that's not their role. Uh, but if you if you believe that, then it's kind of only a natural extension that you'll support this dramatically expansive 
standing doctrine to get these people into court to begin with, because one is a direct consequence of the other. If you think courts are fundamentally a, a force for good, you'll want more you'll want more people to yep. be in court. So, so these issues kind of all relate to one another. Um, and yes, I'm really happy you brought up standing doctrine because. From a black letter perspective, the legal academy is actually, is actually really failing. It's actually really interesting. Um, I, as you mentioned, I went to the University of Chicago Law School, which is, you know, I'm not like to my own horn, but it's just like objectively like one of the best law schools in the country. I, I actually never learned standing doctrine. There were like a few cases, constitutional law, federal yep. courts, administrative law, where standing doctrine would kind of get thrown in there. But never did I truly learn from black yep. letter perspective standing. Because we short circuited it. Because it, it, it does yeah. once you agree that they are the veto, that they are the sole and final expositor of constitutional law, then the, the, yeah, I mean, if you see, the, I, I always say, see, the, the, they're, they, they're, they're taking their erroneous view and doubling down and creating a second erroneous problem. But you should get them both right. In other words, one of the things I always say is that, the fact that you need a case or controversy standing is a proof that they can't be a veto power. Because if the founders meant for them to be that, they would have given them a seamless automatic avenue, just like they originally conceived in the Council of Revision, that, that would that's what it would be. So you're not going to have this kind of weird arrangement. Well, okay, the, the thing about this polarizing dichotomy, okay, if, if I can't manage to get it to court, so so let's say you know I, I have a law that just will it will just be horrible, horrible, horrible. It's totally unconstitutional. If I can't manage to get into court, it's gonna stand. But if I can just get one guy to get standing, boom, like dominoes, the whole thing's gone. It, it the whole thing's so tenuous. But if you understand the real thing, it's it's neither is true. It's 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 in it's in the middle. It's they're never a veto power. You could always push back, but someone always has the option of um trying to get standing, and that's why you have to have rules of what is what is a gestational case? But the problem now is, look, there's one thing at the time of our founding when the disagreements were few relative to t- today. Esoteric questions that are always gray areas of separation of powers questions. So you could say, you know what? Yeah, all things equal. Maybe we'll defer to the legal scholars in the in the legal profession. But now that we've reached a point where we are so polarized that one side believes immigration's in the Constitution, but self-defense is not – I, I, I mean, there, you you can't bridge that gap. So anything that's political in nature, they're going to do what they want with. And if we're going to make them the final arbiter, we have no country left. Yeah. No. I mean, that's that's completely right. Of course. I mean, this whole notion, philosophically speaking, of judicial supremacy, is really kind of at odds with the entire concept of we the people, which the Constitution preamble speaks, right? Um, we are a self-governing people. Our sovereignty was established, uh, well, I would argue at, at the Declaration of Independence, but a minimum at the ratification of the Constitution itself. And there is, there is nothing about outsourcing that sovereignty to black-robed oracles who wield, as you say, like this, this unilateral veto that was expressly rejected. And that's a key point and something that you've talked about on the air and, and, and written about, I believe. The council revision, that was, ex- that was expressly rejected during the ratification debates. Uh, that is not the system that we adopted. The system that we adopted is where the judiciary, to use the Hamiltonian language again, the Fed 78, is the least dangerous branch. 
And and that was and that was supposed to be it. Nothing in Marbury v. Madison. In uh, nothing, nothing, nothing in Marbury counters that. The system that we established was a lowercase r Republican self-governing people with our sovereignty secured by the we the people of which the Constitution's preamble speaks. And we pass our statutes through Congress, which is supposed to be the most powerful branch. By the way, this whole notion of uh, separate co-equal branches, total nonsense. I, I Growing up kind of in, in, in the public school system, I heard that over and over again <laughs> from third, fourth grade through graduating high school. No, that's not true. The, the three branches of government are not co-equal. Yeah, I mean, they're I mean, actually Congress controls yeah, no, the executive and judiciary in many, many respects, but not vice versa. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and like we obviously have checks and balances, and the branches relate to one another. But I've always firmly been in the view that the branches were written in intended order of supremacy of one another. I'm, I'm like, we don't have a full-on parliamentary system. Obviously, it's not like parliamentary supremacy system. But I'm like, kind of kind of as close to a legislative supremacist as you can get. Um, and, and, and I think that's the system that we yeah. that, that we codified. I'm, in in I'm a republic, the, the legislature necessarily predominates. That's Madison. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're, just, we're really just here to sign the founders. I mean, Hamilton and Madison. I mean, we're not like, we're, we're not making this up at a whole club. This is like this is what they adopted. And, and um, you know, we talked earlier on the show about how the incentive structure for being a congressperson has changed. And then there's the whole problem of delegating to the executive branch and how Article 1 is kind of lost on its allure to that respect. But there has to be some niche issue where Congress can find some new check or balance, some new remedy, and they just have to roll with it. And one thing that you and I have both talked about and written about a little bit is judicial impeachment. That would be one wonderful remedy. I've always been, I've always been yeah. of the opinion that the impeachment tool – both for executive and judicial branch actors, has been one of the most chronically underused yeah. tools in the history yeah. of the republic. That, w- that would be an amazing thing to get off the ground if we could just get a, a resolution of impeachment uh, in Judiciary Committee, uh, You know, given that the Dems now control the House. I agree whether that's possible, but it's in theory worth trying. Um, but there are all sorts of congressional tools and oversight vis-a-vis the other branches that we des- desperately need them to start doing more of jurisdiction stripping is obviously a major one. Uh, lots yeah. of conservatives in the House and Senate in theory support jurisdiction stripping. Rarely is there any like serious momentum to get that going. Never, uh, never anything. More- and we never yeah, call never, out like- the individual judges. Like here, here's the problem I have. Everyone knows AOC and and Cortez, yeah. whatever her name is, and all the um craziness she has. But the the problem is this. So. Someone will get up there and say abolish ICE, and everyone's like, "No, that's crazy. We're not doing that. And it's not a problem." But an unnamed judge—they are literally abolishing ICE. I'm not kidding. In many, many facets, they are abolishing ICE, and not not the personnel, but abolishing in terms of the purview of what they could do. And there's no—they never get blowback. No one even like—I mean, I try to make them famous but i'm one person you know like like if you have remember kirsten gillibrand she got blowback so she had to walk back no i didn't mean to abolish ice or remember that so here they get to abolish our borders abolish border patrol abolish sovereignty and they never have to pay for it even rhetorically even you know what i'm saying before you get to jurisdiction stripping or actually impeaching them we don't need because our guys, including even the Mike Lees and the Rand Pauls and a lot of the Freedom Caucus, they won't even at least say 
Judge Blank is completely lawless and usurp power, and there's not a shred of legitimacy, even if you don't actually like do anything actively against it. But at least to assert right. it, at least meaning it's, it's very imagine if I if I go and punch you in the face and I keep doing it and you don't react that, that legitimizes it over time. It, it becomes normal then versus you at least react. You at least know that, no, this is not OK. This is not. Instead, we talk about it as if the law, you know. We really need to um, change the law. Uh, uh, we need to change the law of unaccompanied minors. You idiot. The statute says you're a severe victim of trafficking and you don't have uh, a parents here. And yet they have parents here who themselves are illegal, trafficking them. And, you know, um, I actually I was told by uh, um, one of my contacts that it's gotten so bad that at the Rio Grande River, you will have they'll they'll. Um, a parent will come over and then they'll have the kid walk over some places. The Rio Grande's only knee deep and um, they'll come over and they're with them. But USCIS and the agencies and DHS, they will treat that kid as unaccompanied because for that half an hour, he was unaccompanied. I mean, this type of bastardization of statute, my problem is you can't statute fix your way around judicial tyranny. A, they're they're not just doing statutory interpretation; they're striking down. They're they're downright invalidating provisions. They've been they've gutted every aspect of the '96 immigration bill uh, for years, and we've just allowed that to go on. They ignore jurisdiction uh, stripping statutes, like we saw in the TPS case I spoke about on the show. I mean, on and on. At some point. I'm not even – I mean I'm all for jurisdiction stripping, but it's beyond that. At some point, it's a straight-up civil disobedience that it just it just speaks for itself, and it's just got to be called out as such and treated as such. Yeah, no, that's right. And and you've written about this too. I think you had uh, at least one or two columns talking about uh, how we just will not win the game in Trump administration on filling these judgeships in the, in the, in the circuit courts. Um and there are, there are all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, the numbers in, in main circuits just don't break down in our favor. Like, the, you know, the Eighth Circuit, for example, is like basically all Republican nominees. It's safe. The Fourth Circuit lost for a generation. There just like aren't that many circuits if you actually break it down that are kind of teetering on the brink where like a nom, nomination here or there will like actually make a difference. Um, the Fifth Circuit, where I just clerked, is perhaps an exception like there's an open there's an open mississippi seat it's been open for a while we actually really could use a solid nominee there we'll see if that happens but just in general the overarching principle here and i wrote a column about this like a week and a half two weeks ago maybe the problem daniel and you know this so well obviously the democrats with their judicial nominees are necessarily outcome oriented okay Living constitutionalism is one of the biggest ruses in the history of ruses. It is disingenuous. Um, I, I, I would just call it disingenuous. I do not think it is particularly grounded in, in, in good faith. I think it is to its core outcome oriented. Um, so they're necessarily going to vote in unison for their outcomes. And we see this all the time. I mean, like how many cases at the Supreme Court – do like the, yeah. the liberal justices disagree with, disagree with one another? I mean, every so often, Breyer and Kagan will join the conservatives, and you'll have Sotomayor and Ginsburg dissenting. I mean, masterpieces like that, but masterpiece was a freaking joke. <laughs> okay, so like, I mean, like, how, how many issues of consequence do liberal judges going down to the circuit court level really disagree with one another? But the problem then is for our side, 
because ever since the kind of foundation of the Federal Society, we have this originalism, methodological, exegetical uh, test of sorts. There, there are lots of problems with that. One is, of course, that originalists often don't actually do originalism. That's a huge problem. In other words, um, I, I, and, I know they're bastardizing the 14th Amendment, but I'm not going to quite go back to what the founders of the amendment said, that it creates no new right, no new principle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, we say, and a great example of that, uh, you know, look, I love Anthony Scalia. I literally have a Colt 45 revolver that I got laser engraved on the wooden grip Scalia. I named it after him because of his opinion in D.C. v. Heller. I'm a big gun rights guy, and I love Scalia. But Scalia needs to be faulted a little bit on this, okay? I mean, it was during the oral argument for McDonald v. City of Chicago, the 2010 case that incorporated the Heller gun rights case as applying it to the state. Uh, Alan Gura was making an oral uh, argument a case to use privileges or immunities clause to incorporate as opposed to the so-called substantive due process. And Scalia just like laughed, laughed at it. And um, Thomas wrote this amazing concurrence in that case, like 55, 60 page concurrence, uh, or maybe the concurrence in judgment. It's probably concurrence in judgment, actually, just uh, explaining why it was actually the privileges or immunities clause that should be used to incorporate this right. And Scalia didn't join it. But Scalia, even though he sometimes and then sometimes refused to call himself a, quote, faint-hearted originalist. That's kind of what he was. But anyway, so that's part of the problem for for our judges. And then the other problem is that it's kind of this, you know, this greenhouse effect culture, the term that's used to describe a lot of these right-leaning judges who kind of end up just wanting the media attention and gravitate towards institutional integrity of the court and all that nonsense. And you know, the former kind of media attention was a little, was like more Anthony Kennedy, who's like one of the most hubristic people in the history of hubristic people. I mean, the the, the, the kind of tripe that he was writing in Planned Parenthood v. Casey about the infamous mystery of life passage and all the various ridiculous language in Obergefell. I mean, you cannot be absurdly full of yourself with with, with without writing that kind of language. And I, I attribute some of that to the, to him just wanting praise and accolades from the media and kind of the cultural elite. And then you have people like Roberts who really never claimed to be an originalist. Uh, he was a capital Republican, I guess. And he was on the Bush campaign, you know, long, long history and kind of Republican legal circles. But I don't think he ever claimed to be an originalist. And he isn't. And he cares about like the institutional integrity of the court, whatever the heck that's supposed to mean. So the point is, while the other side is batting a thousand, Daniel, we're batting 300 to 400 at best. So we are literally systemically incapable. Yep of winning the long game on judicial nominees. And that's not to say that we shouldn't do our, our best. Of course we should. Of course we should. Um, like, I, I, when I was clerking, I saw enough three-judge panels, I mean, to know that, like, the composition of, of, of the courts matters. But it doesn't matter as much as a lot of people think no. they matter. Not, not with the one-directional ratchet, um, universal injunction, um, reject Supreme Court uh, precedent from the left, but not from the right. I mean, you see what I'm saying? All those elements make it, you're, you're right. Theoretically, you could get enough good judges in after a while. Although, again, remember the Democrats then win, and over time they'll push it back. And and, and we and when Trump came in, there was a super, super majority of leftists because um, they, you know, a lot of the Bush ones we see every day were problematic. A lot of even Reagan ones are problematic because there just weren't enough conservatives in the legal profession. Um, all the left wing ones are bad, and then you know you you have thrown on top of that a good number of the ones we're appointing are just replacing good guys um, that retired. You know, inevitably by now 
some liberals did retire. We flipped some seats. But the point is, if all they have to do is win one time in one place and shut down a policy, and then it takes forever for us to get to reverse that, and then even if we do, often we don't, and even if we do, uh, they just come back for more because it's okay to do that. You could always be more progressive. I mean, we're not going to beat them by my, their game. I feel like we're using yesterday's tactics of yesterday's battle when the left has long moved on to a new facet of judicial supremacism to get around that. And we're not, you know what I mean? Like we're never fighting the battle of the time. No, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, our people are, are just asleep at the wheel. Um, and this kind of also relates to the federal society and the whole legal conservative movement as an institution. Um, the federal society was founded in the early eighties uh, by a lot of religious, largely Catholic people. Um, Scalia was involved in that. Robert Bork, Leonard Leo, Stephen Calabresi. Uh, it was founded, yeah, for sure, to give like an intellectually defensible uh, rationale for conservative judging. Kind of prior to that, conservative judging more just meant, you know, like anti-abortion, anti-criminal defendant, pro-states rights, all good stuff. But it was a little more outcome-oriented, a little less methodological. But the real kind of shining goal for the Federal Society, at least, and legal eagles for the first 15, 20 years, at least, since it was founded in the early 1980s, was overturning Roe. That was the goal. Uh, it was like it was really no secret that that was the goal. And at some point over the past 10, maybe 15 years, certainly since I started my first year of law school in fall 2013, the social conservative element of the legal conservative movement was already on the decline and yeah. the libertarian wing was already on the upsurge. So even the people that we have kind of fighting for us to fill these circuit seats and district court seats, again, for whatever that may or may not be worth, because we are systemically incapable of winning the long game and the courts are irremediably broken. But even when you accept that premise, we still have... Um, we're still fighting uphill battle as conservatives because it's these judicial engagement types that are, are filling these seats. And the Naomi Rao confirmation battle in the D.C. Circuit last week was really kind of mm -hmm. the pinnacle of, example of this, right? And you and I both wrote columns on this. I mean, Naomi, like I, I, I know her personally a little bit. I, I have, I, I don't know her well, honestly. Um, she's very, very sweet, very, very nice woman. But she, her, her specialty is administrative law. Okay, she is an yeah. administrative law person. Uh, she has some questionable writings that really don't provide much clarity as to where she stands on a lot of social conservatives' core issues with respect to religious liberty, life, sexuality, immigration, things of that nature. And when Senator Hawley of Missouri on the Judiciary Committee started just asking questions about where she stood on substantive due process, a doctrine which, by the way, the so-called legal conservative movement unanimously stood athwart yelling about for 20 years. Scalia was ardently opposed to it, and Thomas, of course, has always been as well. And just for asking questions about where a nominee stood on this doctrine – the Judicial Crisis Network, which is run by the former Thomas, uh, former Clarence Thomas clerk named Carrie Severino, who has a very close ties to Leonard Leo and the Federal Society, dropped half a million dollars in ad buys back in Missouri trying to shame Holly into supporting Naomi. 
again, for questioning, not even opposing, and questioning her from the right. Something the they right. didn't do with Tim not- Scott when they opposed from the left because those were cultural issues. And, you know, but but isn't it interesting that, like you and I have shared a lot of messages this week, that these guys are going to be made to care because the same crowning of judicial supremacy over cultural issues that they evidently don't care about, civilization issues, sovereignty issues, who we are as a people, um, guess what? They're, the, every major Obama regulation, which, by the way, speaking of you're bother, bothered by administrative law, that Trump merely reverses everyone. Just this week, there was the anti-discrimination pay regulation from, from uh, Obama's NLRB. I mean, a lot of the greenhouse gas ones, you would think they'd be all over that. Yeah, no, totally. Um, that's actually a great point, something I hadn't even really thought about, to be honest with you. But you're right. So, like, even there – I don't know. Some days, Daniel, I feel like that you're, you're literally the only person. I talk to a lot of people on a given day, just shooting messages back and forth. It seems like all day long. I don't, sometimes it's like honestly hard to find time to get my actual work done. Um, <laughs> Same I, here. You're like the only person in my orbit who is flagging these rogue judicial rulings for me. If I didn't have you, like I wouldn't be privy to half the problem. And that's amazing. Josh, right? damn it. That doesn't make me feel good. Why are you telling me that? I mean, I want to hear more people are doing this. I mean, it's, this is just, it's out of control. Um, God, we're going to have to continue in part two. We're, we're pretty much out of time. I just want to ask you one more thing. It just came up because I, it's a good, good issue. Um, I'm just seeing that Melissa Quinn just put out on Twitter, she's the um, D.C. Examiner's Supreme Court uh, correspondent. She said that Justice Kagan just said that this is the first year majority of SCOTUS clerks are women. Um, what I wanted to know is, am I imagining something or is there, is there a systemic obsessive culture um, in, in the legal profession, including Republican appointees, to really go out of their way to engage in affirmative action to just specifically seek out certain identity, not just the people that you know you would want for, you know, to be a good law clerk. No, you're not making this up. <laughs> okay, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh is the worst example of this, of course. Kavanaugh. <laughs> Kavanaugh literally hired four female law clerks right out of the bat, and I, I, I honestly don't know any of them personally. I have no comment whatsoever on their acumen or substantive conservatism, original as many of that stuff. But I mean. No one can look at me and tell me with a straight face that after what happened to Brett Kavanaugh, that he is not hiring four female law clerks to try and improve his image or kind of, you know, virtue signal to certain crowds or whatnot. So, no, you're not making this up at all. Um, There are some judges about this who are better than others. Um, I, I personally know a number of judges who just don't care about this. They just like don't think about it. But for a lot of people, even on the lower courts who might have, you know, ambitions about maybe getting tapped to the Supreme Court one day, oh, you you bet they're thinking about it. And then at the Supreme Court level itself, you know, theoretically you've reached the pinnacle of your profession and you have a seat for life. But then even then you have like the, the so called greenhouse effect that we mentioned earlier, right? So you, yeah. you you want you want to get favorable press coverage. You don't want to be the person who's kind of Scully as Grouch always writing against culture war issues. And you probably want to have, you know, like a little United Nations of clerks in your family as well. So it, all these issues relate to one another. You're not making it up. Kavanaugh is honestly the worst offender of this that I've <laughs> probably ever seen in following the judiciary. So it's not just their side. It's our side who's engaging in it as well.
because I just think it it really does have bearings on on what we're talking about because it's you know there aren't too many decisions judges make openly or publicly and and I think again that's just a glimpse into the psyche of so-called conservative judges that the reason why it's important in my mind I don't give a darn who your clerks are but what what that does indicate is that you really care about the racial identity onslaught of the left and you're in your in a defensive posture rather than in a constitutional posture just straight up and as you well know m- the majority of the terrible things that come out of the judiciary in terms of phony jurisprudence is rooted in identity politics and that's why I'm very skeptical of all these people oh don't worry this guy's an originalist you know, there aren't too many people like Clarence Thomas that will say your entire 50 years of interpreting Title VII of the Civil Rights Act is built in garbage. Your entire 14th Amendment, because it has, in their view, oh, they're going to be accused of being a racist. That's what scares me about a lot of these judges. We like to say, oh, they're Federalist Society. They're very uh, mechanical and legal. They're not going to be swayed. I don't buy it. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't buy it. I mean, Clarence Thomas is a once-a-generation figure. I mean, in my opinion, he's up there with... Thomas Sowell is like the greatest living Americans. But yep. yeah, I mean, that's the thing, Daniel. Um, even like the Clarence Thomas clerk family, and many of these people in the Clarence Thomas clerk family are amazing. My judge, Jim Jim Ho, who, as you, I think, accurately mentioned, is an amazing judge. And I'm not just saying that because he's you know also a friend. He's like a legitimately awesome judge, deeply principled man. He was a Thomas clerk. Our mutual friend, Adam Mortara, is hard charging as they come with a Thomas clerk. John Yu, w- wonderful Thomas clerk. But even within Thomas Clark family, I mean, Naomi Rao, who we just talked about, was a Thomas Clark. Carrie Severino, who was head of the Judicial Crisis Network, one who dropped half a million in advice shaming Josh Hawley for merely asking questions about substantive due process, Carrie Severino is a Thomas Clark. So Thomas himself is a once-a-generation figure. And like even his clerk family, and he hires ideologically, of course. I, I don't think he hires the so-called like liberal counter-clerk basically ever. He hires originalists. Even them are kind of like all over the map. So it's it's true. Um, Thomas is as good as we'll ever get. Um, people trying to people trying to find trying to find nine Clarence Thomases <laughs> is not just difficult. It is actually impossible. Like you're not going to do yeah. it. It's just it's just it's just not possible. He's a once generation figure, and it, even looking at his clerk family, frankly, just reveals that. And again, just to sew up our point that if you are going to agree to judicial supremacism rather than expending your political capital on fighting that point, albeit just have this false hope of, oh, I'll win the judicial supremacist game with our point is, I'm just thinking, again, as we're talking, officially the Senate just approved Naomi Rao. Okay, great. Congratulations. Fine. So that would mean that the left now on the second most important court in America, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, they have a seven to four majority. And, and again, I would argue, and I think you'd probably agree with me, we don't need to name names, but not all four of those GOP um, appointees would be that great. Um, and on the active bench, there's there, there's a range. But even if you just use that metric, it's seven to four, and most of the Democrats are relatively new. Um, so they ain't going away anytime soon. You're done. I mean, if you think it's, I mean, like that's the thing. I I don't understand this notion that, oh, we're like we're we're gonna get her on the court. Like, dude, that that ship sailed under the Obama administration. Your only, you know, movement now is to is to is to fight 
the actual grab the bull by the horn, stop fighting yesterday's battle when, frankly, you lost that even in the numbers game anyway. Um, any a, a, any closing thoughts before we sew up? You know, we talk so much off the air. Um, it's always been great to finally get on the air with you. Um, my only adv- advice to you, and like this really kind of hits home after what I was just telling you about how you're the only person messaging me on a given day, all these crazy judicial rulings. Um, we Folks like me and you who seem to be kind of standing at board, what in many ways is the phony conservative movement, the phony legal conservative movement, <laughs> it's not easy. Um, it, it, it's hard. I mean, it, 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 it's hard work to try and remain kind of focused and thinking about broader goals and objectives while so many of our, you know, seeming allies and colleagues just aren't standing there with us providing us substantive ammunition. But we, in in a way, while that's frustrating, it also should encourage us to just double down and dig in our heels because if not us, then who, right? I mean, if if not us, then who the heck is going to be out there talking about the systemic problem of thumb-sucking judicial supremacy, about this Koch brothers-centric, libertarian, corporate, anti-administrative state cabal. I mean, like, we're like the only people out there. And it's it's kind of depressing. We obviously have some in the academic community we referenced earlier who are writing on these anti-nationwide injunction law review pieces. But uh, it's got to start somewhere. And uh, I, I, I told you off the air, but I'll tell you on the air as well. I'm going to start potentially speaking at federal society law student chapters across the country, which is exciting. And, you know, so, so that's, that's part of the problem, of course, is that law students, even conservative law students are not hearing the ideas that we're putting out there. I I hope to provide, but one outlet for, for those kind of idiosyncratic ideas that we're spouting off. But we need to hang in there. These are wars that are not won overnight and perhaps we'll never win, but we, we need to try because if not us, then there's just no one else out there. That's the best we can do. Speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. So that when we actually have that cathartic moment, which I don't know when it will be, but at least we have built the foundation. So if it's not this time, the next time that, will slowly chip away that at some point we'll reach a breaking point. Thank you so much, Josh, for coming on the show. We're going to have you back in the future. You guys could follow his columns at the Daily Wire. We're going to post that um, in our show notes as well. Check out all of his writings. They are very, very prolific stuff. Must read on an array of issues. We are way out of time here. Until next time, God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.